All right, well, welcome back. And welcome to those of you who were not here the first hour. And let's have a word of prayer and then we will get into our next presentation. Father in heaven, we thank you for this privilege we have of studying this sanctuary message. And as we get into an area of history not that long ago, um, I pray that it would help us to understand how Satan has tried to attack this message, but yet you have been more powerful and will ultimately prevail. So be with me in a special way as we go through this next hour and be with each one of us as we listen. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. For those of you who weren't here in the first hour, I'll just do a quick summary of what we saw. We read four quotes from the Spirit of Prophecy. The first one, Ellen White says, the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days is present truth message for our time. We should frequently dwell upon the message. There's another quote, which I'm going to come back to later, where she describes this message as an eternal pillar of truth. Great Controversy 489, she says that the sanctuary message is as essential to the plan of salvation as was Christ's death on the cross. And she says, when we understand this message properly in Testimonies 5, 575, we will prepare people to stand in the day of God and our efforts will be successful. So that's why we study the message. And then we went through some of the history in 2300 days and all of that. So I'm going to leave that up on the board for now. Now we are going to go into our next presentation. And, you know, as a, as someone who studies our message, um, and as I present this message, I find for some odd, well, it's not a strange reason to me, but whenever you talk about history where there was apostasy, that gets a lot more interest than if you just give a straightforward Bible study on the sanctuary doctrine itself. But there's a reason why I'm talking about this. It's not to get more interest. It's to show, the first presentation shows the sanctuary message is the substance and essence of Adventism. And now we're going to see that Satan hates this message and he's attacked it. And we're going to see how he's attacked it. And so the first presentation was entitled The Sanctuary Message and Adventism. This message is entitled The Sanctuary Message and Desmond Ford's Attack. Now, I'm going to read a quote from Councils to Writers and Editors, page 40, which you've probably heard before, which sets the stage for what we're going to talk about. God will arouse his people. If other means fail, heresies will come in among them, which will sift them, separating the chaff from the wheat. The Lord calls, calls upon all who would believe his word, or who believe his word, to awake out of sleep, which tells me that we as a church were sound asleep when the Desmond Ford crisis hit. If we had been awake and doing the work we were supposed to be doing, the Lord wouldn't have had to allow this heresy to come into our church. Precious light has come appropriate for this time. It is Bible truth showing the perils that are right upon us. The light, this light should lead us to a diligent study of the scriptures and a most critical examination of the positions which we hold. And so let me just say this again. If we had not been asleep as a people, the Desmond Ford heresy never would have needed to come in. But here's what happened. We as God's people were in 1979, and I could say that 1979 in many ways looks like 2012. I would say that the men in the Seventh-day Adventist Church had a better understanding of um, what their favorite baseball and football teams needed to do to win the playoffs 
and what players they needed to get so that they could have the best successful season possible. And the women probably had a better understanding of the latest fashions hitting Hollywood and the movies and their favorite movie stars and this and that and whatever. And few, precious few Adventists could give you a meaningful study on the sanctuary doctrine. Is it any different in 2012? I hope so, but I don't know. I go around to a few places and there's a lot of ignorance to our message. And so now we're going to see when there's ignorance to the message, you can have a smooth-tongued theologian with a terminal degree in theology who sounds like he knows way more than you ever have, and he will make you convinced that what you thought you believed never was true because you never studied. And then he dictates the terms of your study so that now you don't really know what you believed in the first place. And when we should have been studying, we were caught up with the cares of this life. So, okay. I'm going to now look at the perspective. I'm going to read a perspective from an eyewitness who was there. And this comes from a paper entitled 1844, Embattled Yet Enduring. It was written by a pastor by the name of Kevin Paulson. Some of you may know Kevin Paulson. And it's at a website, greatcontroversy.org. And it was written August 12, 2006. For those of you who would like the reference. And it's an excellent article. I'm going to use it a little bit for our presentation this afternoon, but if you want more detail, I would encourage you to go back and look at it. But um, he was an eyewitness account. And the first thing, uh, and I'll, well, I'm just going to read it straight through and then we'll talk about it. But this is a very fascinating eyewitness account. And this is in his words. On the fall quarter events calendar, we noted a scheduled meeting of the Association of, Ad Association of Adventist Forms, and this is when he got to school at Pacific Union College. And this Desmond Ford was the featured speaker. His title, The Investigative Judgment, Theological Milestone or Historical Necessity. That's an interesting title. The words, the very words rang uneasy bells in the minds of the faithful. The meeting was scheduled for October 27, 1979. So today is what, the 13th of October? So we're talking nearly 33 years ago to the day, just two weeks short of 33 years since this happened. Now for those of you who are college kids, that seems like a long time ago. But in the history of Adventism, it's pretty recent. Yeah. Mine too, actually. I was two years old. I guess I would have been two years and three months old. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I was two years old when this happened. It was October 27, 1979, and I, I imagine it was probably a day somewhat like today. He says, I remember it well. It was a lovely autumn Sabbath. Words seemed to have gotten around that Ford was about to make a major statement. Devotees of his theology gathered to the PUC campus from far and near. One reported to me much later that the evening before, Ford had stated to her, what I say tomorrow will be heard around the world. And guess what? We're talking about it 33 years later. So... He was right. More than a few seemed to know this. That same evening, I spoke on the telephone with Dr. Herbert Douglas, then serving as senior book editor at the Pacific Press. He was certain Ford would be extremely subtle in his assertions and would need, in Douglas's words, to be smoked out of his lair. He believed utterly out of the question that Ford would join Robert Brinsmead in directly attacking the historic SDA sanctuary doctrine. I then told Douglas I would call him the, t the following evening after Ford's presentation, but only if something dramatic occurred. He seemed quite sure I would not be calling him. He was in for a surprise. 
At 3.30 the following afternoon, two friends and I knelt for prayer in my dormitory room prior to leaving for the meeting site. Somehow we too sensed something serious was about to happen. As we approached Paul and Hall where the meeting was to occur, we saw the doors open and a crowd start pouring out. Running ahead, I learned that due to overflow numbers, the meeting was being relocated to Irwin Hall, PUC's historic building, which then overlooked the lower expanse of classrooms, walkways, and the college church complex. My friends and I turned around and hurried up the long stone staircase, anxious to find good seats. At one point I asked with a hint of sarcasm, what are we running for, so we can hear the investigative judgment thrown away? My negative premonitions were growing stronger. Ford began his discourse with his own testimony, describing doubts he had held for decades about the harmony of the Adventist Sanctuary Doctrine with the Book of Hebrews. He went on to discount the validity of the year-day principle, denied any linguistic connection between Daniel 8.14 and the depiction of, in Leviticus 16 of the ancient cleansing of the sanctuary, and declared that the Book of Hebrews places Christ in the most holy place, not in 1844, but immediately, immediately at his ascension. The crowd loved every word. I mean, what in the world? The crowd loved every word, greeting Ford's message with enthusiastic applause. At least one retired North American Division president was there rising to his feet during the question period with a choked voice and a breaking heart. A group of us gathered in the back after the meeting, hardly believing what we had just heard. Upon returning to my dorm room, I called Herbert Douglas again, as I had promised to do in the event Ford's message was newsworthy. I read him my notes over the telephone. By the time I finished, his sorrow was palpable. Tapes of the meeting belted the world in days. Soon the General Conference intervened, arranging with Pacific Union College that Ford be given a six-month leave of absence, during which time he would prepare a defense of his views, which would then be examined by a committee of persons from varied backgrounds. Ford's manuscript titled Daniel 8.14, The Day of Atonement and the Investigative Judgment, totaled 991 pages and was eventually published in book form. An abbreviated version of the manuscript was also published in Spectrum magazine. A group of 114 scholars, pastors, and church administrators, soon to be called the Sanctuary Review Committee, met to consider Ford's case at the Glacier View Ranch near Ward, Colorado, the week of August 10 to 15, 1980. Less than a month later, following unsuccessful efforts by church leaders to urge Ford's reconsideration of his stand, the General Conference recommended to the Australasian Division that Ford's ministerial credentials be removed. This was done. The years that followed would see scores of pastors and a number of congregations exit the ministry as well as the denomination, and the controversy thus ignited continues to this day. Ford began, oh sorry, I already read that. So, and then he goes on to say, it is an epic the church dare not forget and one whose unfinished business remains essential to the task of contemporary Adventism. How many of you were familiar with the Desmond Ford story? Many of you, some of you not. No, he wasn't here. Right, but right, but he was never here at Southern. So he was a teacher at Pacific Union College, and before that, he had been a teacher at Avondale College. And for those of you who don't know who Desmond Ford was, I'll give you a little background. Desmond Ford was a brilliant theologian. He was like the favorite teacher of Avondale College. He was the teacher that every the theology student wanted to be in his class because he was such a dynamic, engaging teacher. He was easy to... to um, talk to. You could get a meeting with him to talk about your class whenever you wanted. He was a very nice, down-to-earth guy. And then um, 
he started causing some trouble in Australia, and so the GC or whoever the powers that be were said, well, hey, he's a big fish in the little pond of Australia. Why don't we move him to North America? Maybe his influence won't be as big as because he'll be in a larger territory. Well, what happened was he was a big fish that hit the, the global field and it went viral basically once he hit North America. And, you know, we're still talking about him to this day. And just to give you an example of, okay, so Desmond Ford, he comes out and he attacks the sanctuary doctrine. Just to give you a comparison, you see how um, the, the gymnasium has been packed to the rafter, so to speak, with Doug Batchelor this week. And it would in some ways be similar if Doug Batchelor said, I have a major announcement to make about my sanctuary views, and I've changed some ideas. Come out to hear what I have to say. And thankfully, I know I'm confident that that will never happen with Doug Batchelor. But that's the type of... Um, draw that Desmond Ford had, the way Doug Batchelor does. He was a well-known speaker. So, okay, so that's the story. I'm going to look at the at 10 key issues, and we talked about them a little bit. And by the way, there are seats over here, so you all are welcome to come over here if you would like. So, um, Here are the 10 key points that Desmond Ford raised with regard to the sanctuary doctrine. Number one, he says, the focus of the judgment and sanctuary cleansing in Daniel 7 and 8 is not the people of God, but their enemies. So he's like, you Adventists, you say, oh, the cleansing of the sanctuary is going to purify a people of God to stand when Jesus comes. But if you study Daniel, it's actually just talking about God's enemies that are going to be judged. And that's what the sanctuary being cleansed is talking about because it got defiled by the enemies of God. That's basically what he's arguing. Point number two. The year-day principle lacks clear biblical support. So your 2,300 days, that's not 2,300 literal years. That's probably just 2,300 literal days, which is a little bit more than three and a half years or something like that, or seven years. And then it, some people say that since it's evening and morning, it's one day or whatever, so they cut it in half to 1150, and then that's three and a half years. Number three, he says the word cleansed, in verse 14 of Daniel 8 is not a correct translation. And by the way, we're going to talk about all this, but I'm just telling you these are his arguments. Point number four. He says Antiochus Epiphanes was the primary, if not exclusive, fulfillment of the little horn prophecy in Daniel 7 and 8. How many of you have heard that one before? Okay, we'll talk about that. That's maybe one of the easiest points to debunk, but anyway. Um, Issue number five, the book of Hebrews teaches that Christ entered the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary at his ascension. Point number six, the Bible teaches neither a two-apartment heavenly sanctuary nor a two-phased ministry by Jesus in heaven. Point number seven, the phrase within the veil in the book of Hebrews refers to the second veil or entrance to the most holy place. Point number eight, Seventh-day Adventists are wrong in teaching that sacrificial blood defiled the sanctuary, either on earth or in heaven. And then here's the, the last two points which get into a broader, the, the, the repercussions are much broader, the implications are much broader. Point number nine, the writings of Ellen White have no rightful authority in settling doctrinal controversy within the church. Point number ten, the sanctuary doctrine as historically taught by Seventh-day Adventists contradicts the New Testament gospel of grace. Okay, so 
what has Desmond Ford just done? He's basically just destroyed Seventh-day Adventism. And so if you agree with all ten of his points, or even most of these points, you are really no longer a Seventh-day Adventist. Now, recall, and this, for those of you who were here in the first presentation, and I'll repeat it for those of you who came in, Ellen White had her first vision in December of 1844. And maybe I should read that again, just because in light of what we're talking about. It's page 14 of Early Writings. Ellen White said, you know, I, I was taken off in vision, and I was told to look a little higher than she says. I saw a straight and narrow path cast up high above the world. On this path, the Advent people were traveling to the city, which was at the farther end of the path. They had a bright light set up behind them at the beginning of the path, which an angel told me was the midnight cry. And we studied in the last hour that the midnight cry was the Advent movement in the autumn of 1844, setting the date for October 22. And she says, if they kept their eyes fixed on Jesus, who was just before them, leading them to the city, they were safe. And then she sees how people... Um, the light behind them went out, leaving their feet in perfect darkness. They stumbled, lost sight of the mark and of Jesus, and fell off the path down into the dark and wicked world below. And that's what is happening here with this whole Desmond Ford issue, because the 2300 days, that was the, the feel, the mechanism that drove the midnight cry movement. Ellen White says that's the light at the beginning of the Advent pathway. And now Desmond Ford saying, 1844, that's not even true. October 22, that's just a historical necessity. It's not a theological milestone. Um, the year-day principle isn't even true. That's not 2,300 years. And Jesus went straight into the most holy place in 31 AD, if you believe in 31 AD. And he raised questions about that as well. So there were a lot of things going on here that basically destroyed our message when Ellen White says, this is present truth message. So let's go through. And some of these points are going to be pretty easy. Point number one, the focus of the judgment and sanctuary cleansing in Daniel 7 and 8 is not the people of God, but their enemies. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because uh, this is one of the easy points. And before I say this, now, how many of you know Lewis Walton? Several of you know Lewis Walton. He happens to be a family friend of mine. His father-in-law brought my dad into the church, so we've always had a special relationship since then. And um, I was talking to him about Desmond Ford when we were in Loma Linda a few years ago. And we were talking about some of the arguments that Desmond Ford made. And he was like, yeah, you know, um, Desmond Ford, people thought that he had really impressive arguments. But if you really look at them, there wasn't much to it. It's just that people hadn't studied. Um, so the focus of the judgment and sanctuary cleansing in Daniel 7 and 8 is not the people of God, but their enemies. Well... Is that why our critics like uh, Covenant College and these different ones grabbed a hold of them also because they did not understand uh, could be. our theology? Could be. But let's look at, just for example, Daniel chapter 7. So Daniel chapter 7, you see... Um, the judgment being set in verses 9 and 10. It says the judgment was set and the books were open. That's Daniel 7, 9 and 10. And um, when you come to um, 
verses, verse 25, you see that there would be the little horn power that would speak great words against the Most High. Then verse 26, you see the judgment shall sit. They shall take away the dominion of the little horn to consume and to destroy it unto the end. And notice this, the, com the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of, of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of who? the saints of the Most High. So notice there's two elements that happen in judgment. The little horn is destroyed and God's kingdom is given to his saints. And I want to be as charitable as I can towards Brother Ford, but I'm like, look, you have a doctoral degree and um, verse 27 says that the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom it's like you don't have to be a have a, the, a doctoral degree in theology to read the plain english that one of the results of the judgment is that the kingdom of god is given to his saints and yet some seventh day Adventists at the time are like oh man the judgment isn't about god's people oh boy i'm not sure now um and nobody could go to a straightforward verse like that just to show, no, the judgment is about God's people. And then another verse, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. If you're found written in the book, that means that God looked to see if your name was there. So that's in the book of Daniel. And by the way, Daniel 12 verse 1 is a parallel prophecy of Daniel 2, 7, and 8. Daniel 2, the stone strikes the image. Daniel 7, the judgment begins. Daniel 8, the sanctuary is cleansed. Daniel 11 and 12, Michael stands up. Daniel 2 and Daniel 11, 12 show you what happens at the end of judgment. Daniel 7 and 8 show you what happens at the beginning of judgment. And what that tells you is that in order for Jesus to come back, as it says in Daniel 2, there must be a judgment in chapter 7, which results in a sanctuary that is cleansed. And when it's cleansed, Michael will stand up because he has a people written in the book that he's going to come back for. And their names are written in the book. So again, that's the first point. And it makes you wonder what Desmond Ford was thinking when he would say the focus of the judgment and sanctuary cleansing is not the people of God. There's other verses, but we'll just focus on that. Now, the year-day principle. He says it lacks clear biblical support. Of course, Adventists have historically used which two verses? Yeah, Numbers 14, 34, Ezekiel 4, 6. We use those to support the year-day principle. But let me show you something. Daniel chapter 8. Actually, if you study it carefully the year-day principle is inherent within the 2300 days. Let me show you why. In Daniel chapter 8, starting in verse 3, Daniel has the vision. He sees the ram that waxes great, the he-goat that waxes exceeding great. Then the little horn that, or sorry, the ram waxes great, he-goat waxes very great, the little horn waxes exceeding great. And then after he sees all of that, he hears, in verses 13 and 14, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now, when you look at verse 13, it says, how long shall be the vision 
concerning the transgression of desolation to give the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? And then the answer is 2,300 days. Well, as I mentioned in the previous presentation, there's two words for vision, Marae and Hazon. Marae is based on what Daniel heard, and that's what he heard was the 2,300 days. The Hazon is based on what he sees, which is the ram, the he goat, and the little horn. And the question is, now notice this, the question is, how long shall be the vision or the Hazon? How long shall be what we've seen? Well, what have we seen? We've seen a ram, we've seen a he-goat, and a little horn. Okay, now, so how long will be what we've seen? Well, what are, what's the ram, what's the he-goat, what's the little horn? Verses 20 and 21 tell you. The ram is Medo-Persia. The he-goat is Greece, and then you know from history that the little horn is pagan and then papal Rome. So we'll just say Rome. Okay, now notice this. If it's 2,300 days, and if verses 20 and 21 clearly tell you that the ram is Medo-Persia, and the he-goat is Greece, and what Daniel has seen, and, and, and then you also have the little horn, if what Daniel has seen involves 2,300 days. We have a problem if we make this literal time. And this is the best argument for the year-day principle. You can do Ezekiel 4.6, you can do Numbers 14.34, but this, sticking within the context of Daniel, is much better. What are the dates for the kingdom of Medo-Persia? 539 to 331 BC. What are the dates for Greece? 331 to 168 BC. And then you have pagan Rome from 168 to 476. Then you have the interlude, um, and this is BC and this is AD. Then, th then you have the, the interlude and then you have papal Rome ruling from 538 to 1798. Um, so here's the point. If you say that the little horn, or, or no, if you say that the 2,300 days are literal days, you're saying that somehow 2,300 literal days would encapsulate the kingdoms of, of Medo-Persia, the ram, Greece, the he-goat, and Rome, the little horn. And there's a problem with that, because Medo-Persia ruled for 208 years, and then Greece for however many years that was, and then Rome. Clearly, the 2,300 days cannot be literal days. Because the question is, how long shall be the vision, or the hazon? The hazon is what you have seen in verses 3 through 12. And the answer, based on what he hears, is 2,300 days. And here's another key point. Why was Babylon missing in Daniel chapter 8? Babylon, the kingdom of Babylon, it was present in chapter 2, it's present in chapter 7, it's the head of gold in chapter 2, it's the lion in chapter 7, but then in chapter 8 you start with the ram of Medo-Persia and Babylon's missing. Why is Babylon missing? Because the 2300 days starts in 457 BC during the time of Medo-Persia. Babylon's not relevant, even though it's in the third year of Belshazzar, Babylon's not relevant to the 2300-day prophecy, which is the key point of Daniel chapter 8. So anyway, Desmond Ford says that the year-day principle is, um, is not based on scripture, and I would say if you just take a look at what Daniel chapter 8 is teaching, 
if the vision involves Medo-Persia and Greece alone, that's 539 to 168, that's almost 400 years, not quite. So you can't say that the year-day principle is not inherent. It's clearly inherent in the passage in Daniel chapter 8. It involves Medo-Persia, Greece, pagan, and papal Rome. And it makes sense. You start in 457 BC, 2,300 years later, you get past 1798 to 1844, and it involves every single kingdom that is depicted in that vision. Does that make sense? And so here we have a clear biblical Adventist defense for the year-day principle. And again, you can use Numbers 1434 and Ezekiel 4.6. That's fine. Ellen White uses them. So they are a legitimate use. But the very fact that you can just use Daniel 8 to debunk Desmond Ford's argument is pretty nice. Okay. Now this next one is going to be fairly involved here. He says the word cleansed is not a correct translation of Daniel 8.14. How many of you have heard that argument? Has anyone heard the argument where it says under 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed? And people argue, well, the word cleanse doesn't really mean cleanse. Have you heard that before? Has anyone heard that? You, someone has. Okay. Most of you haven't. Well, that's good. I'm glad you haven't been exposed to that heresy. Um, it's nice to see people who are not have, have their minds polluted with heresy. But anyway, so what is the word cleansed? Um, mean? What, um, what is the word in Hebrew for cleansed? Anyone know? No, it's the, well, it's the, it's the Hebrew word nizdak. And what does the word nizdak mean? It can mean righteous. It can mean to justify. It can mean to set right. It can mean to vindicate. And Desmond Ford says it does not mean cleansed. It just means that you're justified or set right or vindicated. But it does not mean um, cleansed. Well, let's see. Is that really true? Let's, let's look at a few points. Now, I'm going to give you a reference here. How many of you know Michael Hosel here at Southern? He's um, a teacher of, um, in the School of Religion and Archaeology. Yeah. Um, his father, how many of you know of his father Gerhard Hosel? Okay, good. And um, unfortunately his father tragically died in a car accident in 1994. He was one of our best theologians in the church. And he actually went head to head with Desmond Ford at Glacier View, so along with my father-in-law Gerard Domstig. But anyway, um, Gerhard Hosel has a very good section on the sanctuary in Symposium on Daniel. This is a um, published by the Daniel and Review Committee series. You can get it to ABC. This is Volume Two of the series, and this particular article is pages 426 to 461. However, he deals specifically with Desmond Ford's assertions in pages 448 to 452. And just so you know who Gerhard Hazel was, he was an Old Testament scholar with a special emphasis in the book of Daniel. So Gerhard Hazel probably knew a few things about what he was talking about with respect to the book of Daniel. And so this is from a theologian's perspective answering 
some of the charges. Well, um, the word nizdak comes from the Hebrew word sadak or sadak. Um, they basically mean um, the same thing. Now, this is the argument that Gerhard Hausel makes, and I've seen others make this as well, and I think it's, 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 a, it's a very compelling case. When you read the Hebrew Scripture, the Hebrew Scripture will use what is called parallelism in a verse to help you understand what something means. Let me give you an example. Turn to Job chapter 4, verse 17. Job chapter 4, verse 17. <clears throat> Notice what this verse says. Job 4.17 Shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? Now notice what happens here. There's parallel questions being asked. The first question is, Shall mortal man be more just than God? The second question, shall a man be more pure than God? Do you see that? Is, is man more just than God? Is man more pure than God? Well, what are the Hebrew words being used here in Job 4.17? What's the Hebrew word for, for just here? And, I, and again, I, I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but this helps to debunk Desmond Ford's point. The word to be more just than God is sadak, or sadak. And the word to be more pure than God is the Hebrew word taher. Okay. So what, and Old Testament scholars teach that when you see a parallel question like this, the second word gives meaning also to the first word. So is a man more just than God? Is a man more pure than God? In other words, to be just is to be pure. That's what the parallelism is teaching. It's not just, are you more just than God? Are you more pure than God? And they mean the same thing. Now, the, the, the Hebrew words are a little bit different, sadak and teher, but this is not the only time in Scripture that they are used together. They are used several other places. And let me show you the next one. Job chapter 17, verse 9. Job chapter 17, verse 9. <clears throat> Notice what this says. The righteous also shall hold on his way, and he that hath clean hands shall be stronger and stronger. Now, what are the two key words in this passage? Righteous and clean. So what's the word for righteous in this passage? It's sadak, which means the same thing as nizdak. And what's the word for clean? It's taher. And there's several other places. I'm not going to take the time to read it, but you can go to Psalms 19, verse 9, Ecclesiastes 9, verse 2, and there's some other verses that Gerhard Hausel makes mention of. The point is this. Frequently in the Old Testament, the word just and cleansed are used synonymously. So when Daniel 8.14 says, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed, and he uses the word nizdak, the Hebrew mind understands that if you are just, you are pure. If you are just, you are cleansed. And Desmond Ford says, oh, it didn't use the word for cleansed in Leviticus 16. It used a completely different word that's not used at all in Leviticus 16. Yet in reality, if you study the parallelism, parallelism of the Old Testament, the word used by Daniel was frequently used to describe what has been purified, to describe what has been cleansed because it's just. 
And so that is a, an argument that many Seventh-day Adventists had no clue how to answer. It's like, oh, well, I guess I didn't know the original language, and I guess I got tricked by the King James and whatever other version was out there, because I thought that that's what it meant, and it doesn't really mean that. Now, we're going to talk about this as well. One of the reasons why Desmond Ford made a big deal about this is because his understanding of justification is incomplete. And we're going to talk about that in point number 10. But his understanding of justification is that you're declared righteous only. You're not actually made righteous by being justified. And so um, that's an issue. So does that make sense of the parallelism of just and pure, just and right and cleansed? that those words are used in parallel in the Old Testament. And, this, and I, I, you know, I give credit where credit is due. Gerhard Hosel put that together in this article, and it's, it's very well written, and I would encourage you to, if you want to dig deeper into that, to take a look at that. Okay, so that's um, point number three. Point number four, the Antiochus Epiphanes is the little horn of Daniel 7 and 8. This one is so easy to debunk. In fact, I looked at a back and forth one time, I forget if it was Adventist Today or Spectrum, this was several years ago, where Kevin Paulson, who I quoted from at the beginning of this article, he and Desmond Ford wrote back and forth challenges to each other, and Kevin Paulson pointed out the points about the little horn, and the points are this, the ram in Daniel 8 is great, the he-goat is very great, the little horn is exceeding great. So they get stronger and stronger and stronger. So you're saying that Antiochus Epiphanes, who was one king of the Greek Empire, was exceeding great for seven years or whatever it was. Actually, it was three years that Antiochus Epiphanes reigned, somewhere around there. And Medo-Persia, which reigned for 200 years, was great. Greece was very great. And then one king of Greece was exceeding great. I mean, that's the argument. And Desmond Ford's response to that is, well, that's what all the scholars say. That, that's his best response. And you know who those scholars are? Those scholars are from Babylon. Why are we going to use Babylonian scholarship to try to prove who Antioch or the Little Horn is? Yeah, we go to their universities, I hear you. And that's what he did. So, but if you just let the text speak for itself, Medo-Persia, which is identified in Daniel 8.20 as the ram, waxed great. The he-goat in verse 21 waxed very great. And the he-goat is Greece in verse 21. And it's earlier in the chapter, it's described as very great. And then the little horn is exceeding great. Somehow, when you look at any history, and you don't have to be a theologian, any historian will say, oh, if Daniel 8 says the ram is made of Persia and the he-goat is Greece, we know that Rome came after Greece, and we know that Rome was way more powerful than Greece or Medo-Persia. So don't let some Babylonian scholar try to confuse you, but that's when Desmond Ford starts to make arguments like that, it shows you just how weak all of his points are. I mean, because it's not even close. Antiochus Epiphanes, Little Horn, that's not even close. Now we get into some other issues and well, I'm running low on time so I'll, we'll, we'll go through this as quickly as we can. He says the book of Hebrews teaches that Christ entered the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary at his ascension and the passage he uses is Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12. Let's look at Hebrews 9 verse 12. Hebrews chapter 9 reading verse 12 and here it says 
neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Now out of curiosity, does anyone have the New International Version? Okay, can, can you read what the verse says in the New International Version? Yeah, go ahead and read verse 12. Hebrews 9, 12. Okay. Okay. Does someone have New King James? Yeah. Go ahead and read. Go ahead and read um, verse twelve. Okay. So you read that, and you're like, "Oh, he went straight from heaven to the most holy place." Now, let me be clear here: um, the King James doesn't always correctly translate the word in the Greek here in, in Hebrews 9. So I'm not saying, oh, look at the King James and look at your bad versions. I'm not saying that. Um, I'm saying look at the Greek. Let the Greek explain it. Um, because the King James even um, will use the term holiest of all, which you would think means most holy place, and that's not always correct. So look at the Greek. Um, I like the King James because I've always used the King James, and, and it's a good version, I think. But anyway... What we have here in verse 12, the, the Greek word for what most modern translations say most holy place, and the King James does say um, holy place. Um, do you know what the Greek word is here? Yeah, it's tahagia. Now, what, do you know what the word tahagia means? It means holy places. So that means, that can mean the holy place and the most holy place. But it doesn't exclusively mean the most holy place. Now how do we know that there's a differentiation? Go to Hebrews 9, verse 3. Hebrews 9, verse 3 says, After the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. And then you see in verse 4 that it had the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold. That's the whole, most holy place, right? So after the second veil, verse 3, you go into the holiest of all in the King James, and in verse 4, in that holiest of all, you have the Ark of the Covenant, which is the most holy place. Do you know what the Greek word is for holiest of all in verse 3? It's Hagia Hagion. And it's the only time Paul uses that phrase. So, Hagia Hagion in the Greek literally means holy of holy places, or the most holy place. So, Paul, the author of Hebrews, and by the way, Ellen White says Paul is the author of Hebrews, so if you hear an Adventist speaker saying, the author of Hebrews says, come on. Ellen White tells us who the author of Hebrews is. We know who it is. Um, I mean, you have the just shall live by faith in chapter 10, and Paul's the only one who describes the just shall live by faith, Romans 1, Galatians 3, Hebrews 10. I mean, anyway. So, um, so um, sorry, let me get back to my point. Paul, the author of Hebrews, he uses a special term to describe the most holy place. It's Hagia Hagion. Every other time in Hebrews chapter 9, he uses the term tahagia, which means holy places. He doesn't specify which apartment in all the other verses. 
we understand from once we get to the book of Revelation and line up the prophecies that you have Jesus in the holy place after his ascension and then finally the most holy place in 1844. But Desmond Ford tried to throw mud in the water, so to speak, by saying, oh, if you go to Hebrews 9, verse 12, and in my modern translation, it says he entered into the most holy place as soon as he ascended to heaven. And people are like, oh, man, well, that totally destroys our understanding of 1844, and I guess we just made that up to explain our disappointment, and we just really were trying to cover for ourselves, when in reality, Desmond Ford was using a flawed argument because the word in Hebrews 9.12 is tahagia, which simply means holy places, and in Hebrews 9 verse 3, the Greek uses hagia, hagion, to specifically describe the most holy place. I mean, Paul who was a lawyer, you think he would be very specific and careful if he's going to differentiate between the two, would you not? So, and, and, the, and this is an interesting point. Um, I know that the theologians who dialogued with Desmond Ford at Glacier View shared that information with him, and he came across as sounding like, oh, wow, that's, that's helpful information. Thank you very much. And yet he comes back around in his 991-page dissertation and um, refused to accept that. Um, so, you know, he knew about it, and he chose to use what the NIV or the New King James translates rather than letting the original Greek define what these mean. <laughs> yeah, he's still alive, and he's in Australia. Now, um, for the last... The next two points are really along the same line. Um, point six, the Bible teaches neither a two-apartment heavenly sanctuary nor a two-phase ministry by Jesus in heaven. However, if you look in Hebrews chapter 8, Paul says that Moses was instructed to make the sanctuary according to the pattern showed, showed to him in the mount. So if you make the sanctuary according to the pattern, then there's going to be two apartments, holy place, most holy place. And in the book of Revelation, you have two apartments. Jesus walking in the candlesticks. He's got the golden censer in his hand before the Ark of Incense. And then in Revelation 11, you see the most holy place with the Ark of the Testament. So that's um, a pretty weak argument. And then he says the phrase within the veil, point seven, in the book of Hebrews refers to the second veil. I don't have time to mention this, but you can go back and look at Numbers chapter 18. Look at the first seven to ten verses, and you will see um, Aaron and his sons were talked about going within the veil and they are described as being in the outer courtyard. And then that within the veil, you would go into um, where the articles of the holy place are at. So there is an example in the Old Testament of going within the veil. And by the way, there were two veils. There was the veil from the courtyard to the holy place, and then there was the second veil from the holy place to the most holy place. So when Hebrews says within the veil, that just means Jesus went into the heavenly sanctuary, and he could be in the holy place, or he could be in the most holy place, depending on what time in earth's history it is. Um, point number eight, won't spend too much time on this, Seventh-day Adventists are wrong in teaching that sacrificial blood defiled the sanctuary, whether on earth or in heaven. And you've probably heard it, how like, so th the animals sacrifice their blood at the altar of sacrifice, then the blood is taken into the holy place, sprinkled um, onto the articles there, and, and so the, the sanctuary becomes defiled because of the blood. And in reality here, what Adamists have taught is that sin is what defiled the sanctuary, not the blood, because the blood is what cleanses sin. But the blood is what transferred the sin, so to speak. It didn't defile the sanctuary, it just transferred the sin. And um, just to make a simple illustration, I won't dwell on this. Um, if you take a shower, water cleans you off, and eventually you need to clean your shower because it gets dirty. 
and it's not the water that made the shower dirty, it was the dirt that made the shower dirty. So anyway, same principle applies. Okay, um, point number nine, the writings of Ellen White have no rightful authority in settling doctrinal controversy within the church. And why do you think Desmond Ford made such a claim? Because Ellen White obviously contradicts him. In fact, if I can find the quotes that I read earlier, Ellen White said in early writings, page 63, that the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days is present truth. And she says in early writings, pages 54 and 55, that Jesus went from the holy place to the most holy place on October 22, 1844, and that those who stayed in the holy place gained Satan as their leader. Um, and it was only those who by faith entered into the most holy place retained Christ as their leader. Um, and there's plenty of other things. Or, you know, Great Controversy 489, Ellen White saying that Christ's ministry in the sanctuary in heaven above is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death on the cross. So Desmond Ford sees what Ellen White says about the sanctuary, and he says, you know what? I'm a theologian. She's not. I have a better understanding of what the original language means than she did. And if you can clearly see what I'm teaching, clearly there's no point to the sanctuary doctrine. Ellen White didn't know what she was talking about there. She's useful for devotional reading, but you can't use her to settle doctrinal controversy. Come to us, the theologians who have the doctoral degrees, because we know what we're talking about. And in reality, there were some theologians who knew what they were talking about, and I've mentioned them, Gerhard Hosel. Um, my father-in-law, Gerard Domstieck, there were others who showed him, hey, look, um, holy places is Tahagia, most holy places Hagia, Hagion. What do you have to say about that? Oh, that's a nice point, and then he doesn't do anything with it. You go to Daniel 8, oh, the year-day principle, it's inherent within the passage, and again. So um, Ellen White, does she have rightful authority in settling doctrinal controversy within the church? You better believe it. Well, yeah, and we prove everything from the Bible, but the point is, is that when Ellen White has a clear statement saying that the sanctuary message is true, and then you say that it's not, um, that's where um, it becomes an issue. And, and her writings do have say in, 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 as far as authority with giving us understanding of doctrine. And then the last point, and we're almost out of time, so I, I really want to make sure that we... Um, get to this last point. Point number 10, the sanctuary doctrine as historically taught by Seventh-day Adventists contradicts the New Testament gospel of grace. What does he mean by that? Why does the sanctuary doctrine contradict the gospel of grace? Well, so what, what about the sanctuary doctrine is not grace-oriented in his words? Well, what's happening according to the sanctuary doctrine? 1844, Jesus goes into the most holy place to begin the work of an, the investigative judgment. And he's reviewing the records first of the dead and then of the living at some point, which we don't know when that's going to happen. And what Desmond Ford says is that is such an ungraceful doctrine, such an ungraceful teaching. And here's a, a few key points about why he would come to this. First of all, he's like, what is the point of the judgment when you really understand the gospel? And here's how Desmond Ford understood the gospel. And um, we could spend an hour each on these points. First point, he says we are born sinners, born under condemnation. 
just by the fact of being born. So because of that, the only way we can be saved is to be legally justified. And sanctification is nice, but it's not part of salvation. And the reason why it's not part of salvation, in, in his own words, is that 50, uh, well, with justification, because you're born a sinner, you're under condemnation, God declares you to be just, you're covered with his righteousness, but you're still that born sinner, so you, you just have a legal covering that's covering you from that condemnation. But that's 100% God's work when he justifies you. However, in Desmond Ford's words, when you are sanctified, that's half God's work and half your effort. And so if you say sanctification is part of salvation, then you're saying that your efforts are part of salvation. But there was one key problem with that point with Desmond Ford. Do you realize what the Bible says about sanctification and God's role in that? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, or, or verse 23. The very God of peace sanctify you what? holy 100 percent so in other words desmond ford is saying you're 100 percent justified by god but 50 percent sanctified by yourself yeah the apostle paul who was his favorite gospel writer and he said that that the apostle paul helps us to understand what jesus meant in the gospels and that the apostle paul in romans 3 4 and 5 helps us to understand salvation the apostle paul here in first thessalonians 5 says that we are sanctified 100% by God. So anyway, so four teachers were born sinners, um, and so therefore we can only be legally justified. Sanctification is incomplete. And so he then goes on to say that um, basically we cannot live an overcoming life based on the grace of God here on this earth. So when you come to the investigative judgment, what would be the point of an investigative judgment if heaven knows that you accepted Jesus in 1995 or 2005 or 2012? What's there to investigate? I mean, Scripture teaches that you're saved by grace, but you'll be judged by your works. Well, why would you need to be judged by your works? Because we know that we're born sinners. And Desmond Ford said, look, we're always going to be sinning. And in fact, Ellen White says perfect health requires perfect circulation. Therefore, if you cross your legs, you're sinning. And it's just part of your nature. Um, and so he basically said sanctification would never happen in this lifetime. Well, what does Ellen White in the Bible really mean about sanctification? And of course, there's the famous quote, sanctification is the work of a lifetime. And you know what most pastors or believers believe about that? It means that we'll never get there. But what it means Justification, and Ellen White says this in Faith and Works, page 100, God requires the entire surrender of the heart before justification can take place. So justification is full surrender. It's being crucified with Christ. Sanctification is a daily maintaining that surrender that started the justification process, which is why it's the work of a lifetime. And it fits the parable that Jesus told in, in the book of Mark, first the blade, then the ear, then the full corn in the ear. It's perfect at every stage, but only when the full corn is in the ear is it at a point of maturity after the latter rain has fallen upon it where it is ripe for harvest. So 
um, when Desmond Ford says the sanctuary doctrine as historically taught by Seventh-day Adventists contradicts the New Go Testament gospel of grace, in reality, his gospel of grace is a false gospel. It's a half gospel that doesn't teach transformation. Let me close with a statement from Ellen White. This is Life Sketches 278. Speaking of the sanctuary message, she says, Our faith in reference to the messages of the first, second, and third angels was correct. The great waymarks we have passed are immovable. Although the hosts of hell may try to tear them from their foundation and triumph in the thought that they have succeeded, yet they do not succeed. These pillars of truth stand firm as the eternal hills, unmoved by all the efforts of men combined with those of Satan and his host. We can learn much and should be constantly searching the scriptures to see if these things are so. God's people are now to have their eyes fixed on the heavenly sanctuary where the final ministration of our great high priest and the work of the judgment is going forward where he is interceding for his people. And I just love the idea that although the host of hell may try to tear these truths from their foundation, they will not succeed. These pillars of truth, they stand firm as the eternal hills unmoved by all the efforts of men combined with those of Satan and his host. So here we are 33 years later, nearly 33 years to the day that Desmond Ford made his attack on this doctrine. And I'm thankful to say that this doctrine is still standing as firm as the eternal pillars of truth. And we need more Seventh-day Adventists who understand the sanctuary message, who when a Desmond Ford comes along are not going to be thrown off and say, oh, well, I guess it's not true. And, and then you have scores of Adventist pastors leaving the ministry, entire congregations leaving the denomination because they're like, well, if Desmond Ford says it's wrong, it must be wrong because I believe whatever Desmond Ford believes and whatever I believe is whatever Desmond Ford believes. Please don't be like that. I mean, I don't care if the speaker's a well-known so-called bright light in the GYC movement. Don't be that way towards any speaker. I don't care who he is or she or whatever. Go back to the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. And if they say something that contradicts the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, they're wrong and the Bible and the spirit of prophecy are right. And that's it. I don't care how much education they have. As good as education is, I believe in education. I have education. But education doesn't trump the word of God and the spirit of prophecy. Let's close with a word of prayer and then we'll take a short break before our last presentation. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have preserved the sanctuary message and even though Satan and all the forces of, and hosts of hell with the efforts of men have tried to tear this message down, we thank you that they have not succeeded. And I just pray that we would be faithful to this message and continue to follow you and be with us as we have one more presentation this afternoon. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we'll take a short break, five minutes preferably, and then we're going to look at the high points of the sanctuary doctrine in the book of Hebrews, and we'll see what Jesus is doing in heaven right now to prepare a people to stand when he comes in the clouds of heaven. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.